All right. I would invite you to have your Bibles handy. Um, we are in a topical series, just began last week, that relates to the family. And we began with foundational considerations last week regarding the nature of God's design. And we connected the nature of God's design to the family, recognizing foundationally that as we talk about the nature of the family itself, and as we talk about the various roles within the family, that it is a, a topic which falls into the broader scope of teaching on God's design. That the reason why we do the things we do, the reason why we, we position ourselves as we do, whether it be in family or in society with government, or uh, as we um, talked about the church and how the church is organized, that these things are elements of design, that we, we do what we do because God has designed it to be that way, and thus we understand how things are. The foundation of a stable family is a stable marriage, and the foundation of a stable marriage is when the God-ordained head of that marriage, who is, according to the word of God, the husband, is filled with godly fear and a deep-seated appreciation for the responsibility and the accountability under which he rests. And for this reason, naturally, as I've always done in my family series, I intended to start with husbands. I typically preach to the husband first because the responsibility rests with him. But this time around, I felt led to go in a different direction. Though the husband most certainly is the one that will stand before God and answer for his leadership and the one that is called by God to lead the family into righteousness, I want to start with wives so that next week when we talk to husbands, you'll understand perhaps a little better because we've already talked to wives just how important your role is. And so, wives, I begin this series, uh, the meat of this series, of course, last week on design, I begin the meat of this series speaking about the biblical concept of being a wife, and we're going to cover this uh, under the umbrella of three primary topics. First, the wife as a helpmeet. Second, the wife as a co-heir to the grace of life. And then third, the wife in submission. And all of these are elements of God's design as we see them reflected in the scriptures which is why last week was so essential as we talk through this. And husbands, don't check out, because like I said, what I'm going to talk about this week is going to become, in part, the basis for elements that I'm going to give you next week as far as your role and responsibility is concerned. But as we talk about it this week, think about these elements and, and filter these elements through the reality of design. What is God telling us? about the, the role of the wife, the relationship between the husband and wife, and how, and, and our loyalty to it. How can I be loyalty, loyal to it? Not as an extension of what necessarily I always want to do, but as an extension of what God has designed me to do. And so we begin with wives as a helpmeet. Wives as a helpmeet for him. The very essence of why woman was created, according to the word of God, comes from man needing companionship and needing a, a fill-in for the areas or the elements in which he lacked. We find this in Genesis chapter 2, where the Bible reads, beginning in verse 15, And the Lord God took man and put him into the garden of Eden and dressed it, uh, to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them into Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he woman, 
a woman and brought her unto the man. So we find here a scenario whereby God in his creation thus far had made everything and we see that everything we know from from the the account in Genesis chapter 1 that everything was very good. But there was something existed which was not very good when exactly this element happened, whether or not uh, this was during the, the, the week of creation or whether this was afterwards, the Bible does not tell us. Uh, but we do see something that was not very good. And what was not very good was that it was not good that man should be alone. It was not good that man should be alone. This is the first time that we see a not good in the Bible. Everything else was very good, but it was not good that man should be alone. Man needed a companion, and specifically here, the Bible says a help meet. This word help meet in the Hebrew literally means an aid or a helper. The term is used in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Old Testament, 21 times to speak of men in need of assistance, lacking something that is fundamentally important to them, and then being aided by some outside force, and that force would be the aid, the help. To him, It's not always speaking of a wife, naturally, but that's how that word is used. It speaks of an aid or a helper. God recognized that man was alone and that this was not good and that man was lacking something fundamentally important to him. And to highlight the nature of this need, God commissioned Adam to give names to all of the beasts. And so Adam is naming all of the beasts and he gives names to them all. And at the end of his naming, there is not one like him. There is not one for him. There's no companion for him that can help him and that can be that for him. So God created woman. And woman was created as an extension of mankind. She came from man as an extension of man's existence to help man be complete. She is not in in that sense a separate and unique entity, but an extension of man himself that became a separate and unique entity created from man and for man explicitly to meet a need that man had for companionship and aid. What man lacked, she supplied. And to this point, I want to be clear and explicit. Eve was not human 2.0. God did not create Adam find that Adam was lacking in essence and then create another person that had all of Adam's attributes but added to them more attributes to make a more complete person. Rather, God created another person from the same mold as Adam yet created in the image of God just like Adam was and made in the essence of her character foundationally to fit perfectly as a complement to the shortcomings of mankind, to the things that mankind could not fulfill within himself. So that when the two are joined together and when they're operating in harmony, they together form a unified and complete whole that they would not otherwise complete. That there was something lacking within man himself. See, the Godhead has something. Man was made in God's image, but the Godhead has within itself companionship, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are in perfect unity and they have companionship. But though man was made in the image of God, he lacked companionship. He lacked that aid that he needed and God created woman to fill that need. And I say this very carefully. It's important to understand that Eve did not supply something that Adam lacked spiritually in that he did not have a full, uh, he was not capable of having a full and complete relationship with God outside of her. That, that was not the case, nor did, was Eve created lacking something that she would need spiritually to have a relationship with God that Adam fulfilled. This was not a spiritual need that was being fulfilled here. Eve did not supply something functional which Adam lacked. It was not that Adam was incapable of doing something and and Eve was necessary in order to to create that capability outside of, of course, procreation, which is a little bit outside of the scope of what I'm trying to say there. Obviously, um, there there was the need for procreation there and and Eve supplied that functionally. But as far as him actually being a, a capable human being, being able to live in the world that God had created for him, He was able to do that. 
Adam lacked nothing in his relationship with God without Eve, only he lacked something in his relationship with the created order and in himself. He lacked nothing in his capacity to live and to obey God without Eve, only he lacked the grace of living that comes from doing it with someone and oftentimes for someone. And I make this distinction clear so that I might for a moment divert our attention. As I talk about the idea that that woman was created for man, and we see this biblical concept in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I want to take a moment, and it's been a while since I've brought this up, to talk about those, to draw attention to those adults among us who are single. Anytime we preach on marriage and we preach upon uh, family and wives and husbands and such, that, that, that there is perhaps a little bit of unpleasantness as it relates to those who, as adults, are single. And especially when we start talking about how woman was made for man and they complete each other and there's this, there's this thing that they have and all of the, these elements, um, there can perhaps be a discomfort, a, 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 um, a disappointment. I, I don't know. I got married kind of young. Not super young, but kind of young. I, I was never under a message, uh, these sorts of messages when, when, uh, when we were really having those problems. So I I can't relate to you in that way, those of you that are single. But I do want to make this very clear. Being single by no means implies that there is something lacking in you as it relates to your spiritual relationship with God. Being single by no means implies that there is something lacking in you in the essence of living in a manner that pleases God. As a matter of fact, when we look at what the scriptures tell us, quite the opposite can be true. Being single does mean, however, that there is an element of human fellowship, companionship, and human intimacy that you have not experienced. There is an element of completeness on the human level, the the material, the temporal level, the essence of a fully functioning human being in that way, uh, uh, from a companionship level, that is missing outside of God's design as it relates to the institution of marriage. And, and it can be called any number of things. Some people might call that a loss, uh, perhaps for some a sacrifice for those willing to choose that path of singleness. And it is a loss as it relates to the human experience. But it can be a gain, a true gain as it relates to one's spiritual relationship with God and spiritual capacities to serve God. And Paul makes this clear from 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the woman, rend, uh, the husband, excuse me, render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband... And likewise also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and to prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency or inconsistency. Uh, In this passage, we find Paul reference both the privileges and the responsibilities of the marriage relationship as it relates to physical intimacy, that the fundamental desire of mankind for physical affection and intimacy and companionship is designed by God. And as we have just read, it is designed by God to be fulfilled within the context of one man and one woman joining themselves for the duration of their lives to form a single entity in marriage. Now, the privilege that this relationship affords is also a responsibility that the man and the woman who bind themselves together in this covenant oblige themselves, oblige one another to meet the fundamental physical needs and desires of their spouse. And it is wrong outside of a higher uh, temporary spiritual endeavor, such as fasting and prayer, to withhold this fellowship and this intimacy in any form whether emotionally or physically, from their spouse. That that companionship is not just a responsibility, but a duty of the spouse. And this is the privilege of marriage, a material and a temporal fulfillment, a material and a temporal companionship with another human being that is unlike any other in the world. It is an intimate union between the man and a woman in the bonds of holy matrimony, and that is how God has designed it. But 
take note, it is still only temporal. It is still only material. So Paul goes on to say this in verses 6 through 9. He says, But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself, who, Paul, being unmarried, of course, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore unto the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And that idea of burn, we see it several times in the New Testament speaking of being under fierce temptation. And in this case, the, the temptation to to go outside of the, marriage, the bonds of marriage and fulfill those, those desires for intimacy. We continue then. I skip to verse 32 and the Bible says this. Paul's still speaking. He says, But I would have you without carefulness, he that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he that is married carried for the th- cares, careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Paul says, I don't want you to be full of cares of this world. I don't want you to have to live under the cares of this world. And make no mistake, when you get married, the cares of this world become greater. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but, that, but for that which is comely, appropriate, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. So the unmarried man or woman loses nothing as it relates to the spiritual because of the lack of the material or temporal companionship of marriage. In a marriage, we, there are privileges. We, we, we learn, and there are spiritual lessons that can be learned. I've learned quite a bit about God as father by being married and having children. I've learned quite a bit. I've learned quite a bit about Christ as the bridegroom by being married and having a wife over whom I am the head. I've learned a tremendous amount about God from the the privileges, responsibilities, and side effects or outworkings of marriage. But, so I'm not trying to say marriage can't be spiritually beneficial, but what I am saying is that the unmarried man or woman, for all that we might perceive them or they might perceive themselves to be missing out on, are not by the nature of their singleness missing anything as it relates to their spiritual relationship with God their capacity to have a full and enriched and a satisfying relationship with God and to lay up treasure in heaven. And on the contrary, Paul states quite clearly here, quite plainly, that the man or the woman who is not bound to the material considerations that come with marriage have a capacity to attend upon the Lord without distraction in a way that a married man or woman simply cannot do without abdicating the responsibilities of their relationship. I cannot spend every night of my week out hitting the streets, evangelizing the lost, ministering to the needy. I can't do that. I've got a wife and I've got children. I've got to be with them. I've got to raise my children. I've got to spend time with them. My wife needs my company and my companionship. My children need my company and my, my, my leadership and my companionship. I have responsibilities. I can't just pack up and say, I'm going to go on the mission field and help this missionary for, for a couple months and then go help that missionary for a couple months and then go help that missionary for a couple of months. I can't do that because I have a family. I have to provide for my family. I've got responsibilities. There are material considerations, which the single among us may not have, that I have because I am married, because I have children. I can't give myself wholly to these religious spiritual devotions. I can't even give myself wholly to meditation and prayer. You know how hard it is to pray for any extended period of time when you're a dad? There's always some kid running into the room, right? It's a hard thing. I, 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 there, there are times where I, I feel like I'm a sponge that's squeezed just a little bit dry simply because I have a hard enough time finding time and energy to devote myself to the things of the Spirit. 
I have human, physical, earthly, material obligations, and those obligations will not just push the boundaries of my time, but they'll push the boundaries of my energy, and they'll push the boundaries of my capacities. And those things take away from my ability to attend upon the Lord without distraction. They do. It's inevitable. And while this union, the marriage union, is by, without question blessed by God, it does demand more of my time and effort to be placed on the material, earthly, and temporal concerns than my brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have spouses, who don't have children to attend upon. And so as I'm talking about these things, I did want to take that time to remind you, especially those that are single among us, that this is not intended in any way to be a slight or, and, and I hope it doesn't make you feel as, as if you are um, inadequate or that you're, you're missing out on, on something in the spiritual sense, because you're not. And indeed, in many ways, you have a, an advantage that the married do not have as it relates to attending upon the Lord without distraction. So a woman was made to be Adam's helpmeet and companion, to fundamentally meet the needs which he could not meet within himself. And this is a wife's charge. She is to be for a man what he has not or is not within himself. And we see this reflection in a couple of different New Testament scriptures. I've chosen to go to Titus chapter 2. We'll be here again next week as we relate ourselves to men. But in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this. But speak, and this is Paul writing to the pastor Titus. He says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Notice the reason. This is a design thing. This is about the word of God being blasphemed, right? This is about not allowing the word of God to be blasphemed. This is about a good testimony among the unbelievers. So within the commission, Paul speaks uh, of sound doctrine as it relates to various groups, the old men, the old women, the young women, and the young men. And as it relates to young women, the implication of Paul speaking to the young women here is not necessarily as much like an age thing uh, as, as it is the idea that a woman is in that time of life when she is raising children, when the husband is busy providing, when they are managing a household. And that's what will will lot into the young woman category. Uh, uh, for, for the sake of this doctrinal teaching. And so Paul teaches that married women, that, uh, that for them to exemplify sound doctrine means to teach them, among other things, to love their husbands. And this word love, both as it relates to the husband and the children, to love their husbands and to love their children, is the concept of showing affection. It is not that self-sacrificing love that we would connect to the Greek word agape. Uh, many people say that agape is like divine love and phileo is brotherly love. I really don't like those definitions. Um, we see them used interchangeably in any, any number of times in Scripture, uh, and and yet there is a distinction between them. The tip, typically how I like to describe them is that agape love is a love that is manifest in self-sacrifice. And phileo love is that love that is manifest in loyalty, like a brotherly love would be. And this word here that we see in this passage, it's not either agape or phileo or, or philos, it's, but it is a, it's a derivative of Phileo. It's a derivative of that loyalty-focused phileo love that seems to speak toward the wife doing something for husbands and children, particularly the thing that they do so well, which is to demonstrate emotional affection and loyalty. Demonstrate emotional affection and loyalty toward your husband, toward your children. Men generally lack in this area. And it's not because we are not affectionate or emotional, but only rather because God's design in a man, God's commission over a man, bends our nature toward a degree of roughness around the edges, a way of living that positions us to be 
ready to face the harshness of a sin-sick world, to face the burdens and difficulties of leadership, but not necessarily to regular and consistent demonstrations of emotional tenderness and affection. Now, note I'm speaking generally here. There are all sorts of different character, right? There's different men with different levels of character, with different experience, with different personalities that will alter this to some degree or another. But in general, uh, we recognize that within society, that historically women have been significantly more prone and capable of this emotional loyalty and affection, And none of the uniquenesses of men's experiences or character or personality threaten this general overall reality of God's design as it relates to men and to women. We find also that they are to be, as the Bible says, keepers at home, good and obedient to their own husbands. The obedience thing we'll talk about more later. But the idea of a keeper of the home is another where man's deficiencies are obvious and a woman's strengths are magnified. Call it nesting, call it accessorizing, call it whatever you will. But if it were left up to me, every wall in our house would be white and would be bare. Or at the very least, it would only be thematic and generally thematically uninviting. Men's walls are generally not filled with flourishes. Men's walls, if they are filled, are generally filled with conversation starters or trophies of their own greatness and accomplishments, right? You'll put a deer head on the wall or a big fish that you caught on the wall you'll hang up your diploma you'll put a picture of your favorite camping spot an emblem reflecting your sports loyalties as a father and a husband naturally you put up pictures of your families on the walls but you aren't going to look to create a multi-room unified theme miscellaneous whatnots designed to create a feeling of comfort a mood of levity to blend into the background so that everyone knows what is there but doesn't feel like they have to acknowledge it because it's so well-placed. See, when that happens, it's meant to create an atmosphere, not a conversation. Not one of men's strong points. The idea here, where men lack, women supply. And, And this wife is a portion of God's design. Now, I give you these silly generalities, right, about wall hangings and about uh, and less silly a generality about uh, emotional affection, uh, you know, when, when a child falls on the ground and the dad says, shake, you know, shake it off, and the mom comes and gives the child the hug that she needs and, or he needs, and, and there's these generalities. But it's not just that, wives, your husband has holes in his character, in his capacities, in his abilities. He needs companionship, but he needs more than that. He needs help. And you exist for that. When you accepted his hand in marriage, and you said, I do, and, and, and you made those marriage vows, You stepped into a role where you are there to fill his deficiencies, to be for him what he needs to complete him. You're his companion. You're his friend. It is right for your husband to want to spend time with you because you're a good companion for him. You aren't just dead weight along the journey of life. You aren't just adding friction to all of his desires. You are his companion. I remember being down uh, working uh, one time down in Florida and uh, I worked with my wife there at the college and somebody came up to me one time and said, he, he said, you work with your wife? And I said, yeah. And he said, I could never do that. We'd kill each other. And while I can understand the sentiment, that's a shame. <laughs> because wives, you're supposed to be companions. You're supposed to be helpmates. You're supposed to make up that desire in that man's heart for companionship. He ought to enjoy being around you. So you aren't to be the friction to all of his endeavors and desires. But you know what you might be, wife? In this endeavor to be what he needs, you might be a speed bump. Your husband might have ambitions that need to be checked and he knows it and you know it and you need to be that for him. Your husband might consider 
his goals, but he may not do a good job at considering how to accomplish those goals. He may not ever really, may not pass through his mind, how am I going to pay for these goals? And you might have to be there to help him see the other side of that coin and say, hey, those are great goals, husband. How are you going to pay for it? We'll talk more about that when we hit submission. But loving your husband, obeying your husband, submission itself does not explicitly mean sitting in terrified silence while your husband makes a mess of things. And then saying, well, I'm here to be seen and not heard. I guess I'm just supposed to submit. That's not it. You are his companion. You are a helpmeet for him. You exist to help your husband, to make up the difference in his deficiencies, to aid him in his personal, emotional, and spiritual success. Wives, you are a helpmeet for him. Second point, wives, you are co-heirs with him of the grace of life. Wives, you are co-heirs with him of the grace of life. Now, we stopped reading in Genesis a a few minutes back in in chapter 2, verse 22. I want to pick up in verse 23 and read through verse 25. The Bible says this, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked and the man and his wife and were not ashamed. So Adam and Eve became one flesh, the Bible tells us. They became, by God's decree and by God's design, a married couple. And so in his eyes, a single entity where there were two in the eyes of God as it related to their uh, uh, material and temporal elements and and to a degree spirit obviously they still each have their own spirit but they become one what happens to one unavoidably affects the other the husband and the wife become partners called by god to approach life as a team together bearing one another's burdens compensating for each other's weaknesses meeting each other's needs the husband is not pulling the wife along in this life nor is the husband prodding his wife along in this life they are a team the husband does not look at the at his wife and the wife does not look at the husband and say Now I'm going this way. You just need to keep up. You run together. You match pace. And if one is slower, then the other runs alongside. And perhaps while you're running alongside, you're helping them get faster. Now the basis for this understanding is actually rooted in a command to men, which again we'll talk about more next week. But I want the church to understand it carefully. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says this, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Marriage is not a dictatorship. It is a partnership. Now, the final say and the final authority rests with the husband. This is by design. We'll talk about that in a moment when we get to submission. But this design does not exist to put women on the back burner or to marginalize the role of the wife in the home. She's not simply support staff. The husband is commanded here to dwell with his wife according to knowledge. He is compelled to understand and care deeply for the needs and the concerns of his wife. He is called to understand her strengths, to understand her weaknesses, and to account for them in his decision making. Because the husband and the wife, and this is where we're going with this. Again, we'll talk about the husband more next week. But the husband and the wife are co-heirs to the grace of life. Co-heirs of the grace of life. The results of the life that God has given to the husband and to the wife are inextricably linked. The husband and the wife are not just two people living in the same home or two people who share the same stuff or who share a bank account or any of, those, any of the sort. They are a single unit that rise and fall together in the eyes of the Lord. If I am running along and I have left my wife in the dust, the Lord is not pleased with me. The Lord is not pleased with me because she's a part of me and she needs to be there too. If, if wife, you're just going off doing your own thing and your husband, uh, his deficiencies, his successes, those are not on your mind. The Lord is not pleased with you. Your husband, you are not a co-heir with him to the grace of life. You two have your own agendas. You two, your prayers are being hindered. Men, we need to see our wives this way. Women, you need to understand yourself this way. 
Our wives do not exist so that we can live as we will, men, in reckless abandon, disregarding their needs, and then expecting them to make the best of it or to learn to live with it. Wife, you are a co-heir to the grace of this life. And once again, what this means for you is that as a wife, you are there to partner with your husband for your marriage's mutual success. And we'll see this more in submission, particularly for your husband's success. All of this operates within this very important context of submission. And I gave all of this to you because I feel these characteristics often get lost under the weight of preaching on submission. We preach on submission. It's an important concept. It's one that's brought up any number of times as it relates to wives in the Bible. But I feel like even in my own preaching as I've reviewed the, the sermons that I've preached on this issue topically, that I've not done a good job at emphasizing these other elements of wife, the helpmeet for him, the co-heir together of the grace of life. Wives, you are a helpmeet to your husband, designed and commissioned, enabled, empowered by God to make up the difference in those elements of his character and nature where he is lacking, to afford him the companionship that he needs. Wives, you are a co-heir of the grace of life. You are partnered with your husband in the endeavor to create a unified, successful life together. You're not a supply line. You're not a spare tire. You're not just a bonus. You are a partner, a co-heir of the grace of life uh, and all the graces that this life affords unto God. But make no mistake, and this is where we get to this final concept, make no mistake, wife, you are also, just as you are designed to be a helpmeet, just as you are designed to be a co-heir to the grace of life, you are designed to be under submission, under the authority and the leadership of your husband as it relates to this partnership. This is our final of three points. Wives, submissive to God's design. Submissive to their husbands. We already read in Titus 2 where the wife is called to be obedient to her husband, her own husband. But to round out this concept, we'll go to the most clear passage, one of two perhaps, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20 through 24, which says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the, bo- of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Notice how important God's design is to this whole scenario. The church submits herself to the leadership of Christ because Christ has been ordained by God to be the head. He has been given the authority. He has been made by virtue of his humility and by virtue of his submission to the Father. He has been given authority over all things and thus it is that the church submits herself to Christ in all things by God's design. The very essence of what it means to be a believer is that we are a follower, a submitter to Christ. This is God's design. In the same way, by God's design, the very essence of what it means to be a wife, wife, is to be submitted to your husband. So what does it mean? What does submission mean? Submission is not an outworking of value or of capability or of capacity. Submission is an outworking of position and authority. God has designed the husband to be the one who bears the authority and responsibility, we'll talk more about that in a minute, of setting the direction and the priorities for the family. Like a couple going on a hike, they both put their boots on, they both get their backpacks on, and the husband says, we're going to go down this path. And the wife says, okay, and they begin to walk together. And when he needs help getting up a stump, she pulls him up. And when she needs help getting up a stump, he pulls her up. And they're walking together, but the husband has dictated the path. And then the husband says, I think we should go this way. And the wife looks at the map and says, maybe we shouldn't go that way. Or the wife says, no, 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 I think we should go this way. And then it's ultimately the husband's decision as to which way they go. And if he says, no, 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 I want to go this way, she says, okay, and they go that way. Or he might say, well, thank you, honey, I didn't see the map. And we go that way. It's not that he's dragging her along by a leash. They're hiking together, but he's dictating the direction and he's bearing the responsibility of those choices. The husband considers her needs, considers her reasons. We need to stop. I've got a blister, whatever. You you, you consider those things, but you walk together. And this has been 
lost in society. See, in society, and even in much of the church, people's understanding of the concept of submission is rooted in power relationships of superiority and worth. That the citizen who submits to his government is intrinsically saying that the government is more powerful, that the government is more worthy, that I'm weak, they're strong. That the servant who submits to his master, that the employee who submits to his employer, is doing so because they are tacitly admitting that the employer is a better man than me. That the child who submits to his parents is declaring somehow or in some way that your parents are better than you or smarter than you. These things have nothing to do with submission. Submission is not a power play. Submission is not about who is better than someone else. Submission is not about superiority and weakness. A wife being called to submit is not an acknowledgement of her weakness or her incapacity or her inability. Those are not, they're, they're not related. It's, it's, a, it's a non sequitur. These things don't relate one to another. Submission is an outworking of design. Submission is an outworking of position and authority. It's not an outworking of value, of capacity, or of capability. The believer who submits himself to the church is not saying that he is inferior to the church or to the pastor in any spiritual way. And the wife that submits to her husband is not saying, husband, you are a superior person, I have less value than you. I am weaker than you. I am less capable. None of those things come into play with submission. True submission has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. True submission has nothing to do with who is strong and who is weak. True submission is about design, that God has given authority to a particular person. God has designed things to operate in a certain way. And that in spite of the perceived differences between my perception and of God's design, I trust that if I do things God's way, it will be best for me. So that the citizen who submits to his government is not admitting that his governors are better men or better leaders than he is. As a matter of fact, in most cases, that's not the fact. The whole reason why they're in politics is because they're not very good people, generally speaking. But rather, I submit to them, acknowledging that regardless of that man's character, God's design has put him there and given him authority. And I am submitting to my government for the government's sake, for the Lord, not, not for the government's sake, but for the Lord's sake. For the, for the sake of God's design, for the sake of authority structure that God has put in place. So that the servant who submits to his master is not admitting that his master is better than he is, or even admitting that he has a good master, but rather he is acknowledging that regardless of the man and his actions, that God's design has given him authority. He's not submitting to his master for his master's sake. He's submitting to his master for God's sake. Now, we could do the same about children and parents, and we will in a few weeks. We can do the same about a church and, and, and those who would submit themselves to the leadership of a church. And this is what we speak of today as it relates to wives and your relationship to your husband. Submission does not mean that the woman cannot or should not have a say in the marriage, that she just needs to sit down and shut up. That's not what submission is calling for. Submission does not mean that the woman can not or should not assume important tasks or even make important decisions in the family. Submission is an attitude which is determined that the, the, determines everything that a wife does, that, that, that regardless of the context within which she's working, she is working under an attitude of submission, whereby every decision she makes and every objective she holds for her marriage and for her family is aligned with the objectives, the desires, and the determinations that her husband has set forth. So that when she makes a decision, she says, is this the decision that my husband would want me to make? That's submission. The structure, the spirit of submission is that the wife's overarching goal is to bring her husband's priorities to a successful end. That when her husband is successful, she is successful. 
that she gauges her success in decision making, her success in her capabilities, her success in her home, that all of her success is wrapped around whether or not her husband is successful. See, it's the husband's job to provide for the family. And it's the wife's job to facilitate that provision in whatever way necessary. For some, this means taking care of the kids so the dad can go off and, 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 to, and provide for the family. For some, it means doing the tasks at home that he can't do so he can do the work tasks. For others, it may actually mean that the wife is the one that is going out and earning the money so that her husband's responsibility to provide for the family can be successful through her labors. She brings home the money and she is thus reflecting success upon her husband's responsibility to provide for the family. Her success is his success. Should turn that around. His success is her success. At the end of the day, has she been successful as a wife? Well, here's the question. Has her husband been successful? If the answer is yes, then yes. Her answer is yes. Has she facilitate, facilitated her husband's success? If the answer is yes, then she's successful. She's, she has submitted herself. Indeed, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 was a woman of industry, was she not? The woman of Proverbs 31 greatly increased the wealth of her household under the submission of her husband. Some husbands might need more help than others' wives. Some husbands need more accountability than others'. Some husbands need more physical help than others. As a wife, submission means making your husband successful. Aligning your priorities with his priorities. Why? Because he's the one that's accountable, ladies. We're going to talk about this next week. He's the one that has to stand before God and answer for whether he provided for his household. He's the one that has to stand before God and answer for whether his children have been taught and nurtured in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's the one that will be held accountable for that. And your job is to help him stand before God on the day of judgment successfully. To this end, the submissive wife is the wife who has aligned her will and structured her life around accomplishing the goals and responsibilities of her husband for the family. Now, again, in many scenarios, the husband will delegate a tremendous amount of his responsibility to the wife. The buck still stops with him. He's still ultimately responsible, but he'll delegate a great deal of that to the wife. It is the father's responsibility to raise up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But he might delegate a great deal of the nitty-gritty day-by-day to his wife. She's going to be the one that's doing the schooling, perhaps, or uh, spending time in the Bible with them, or whatever the case may be. By doing this, if it's all done properly, he's not yielding his responsibility. Because wife, what you are doing is you are doing what you're doing in alignment with his vision, his goals, and his, his desire for the family. He is entrusting you as his helpmeet to partner with him in accomplishing these tasks. Maybe your husband isn't a good money manager, but he wants the family to be financially well. And so he wisely delegates himself out of the task of money management. And so then he comes up to his, his wife and he says, hey, honey, can I spend this money? Now, he's not doing that to submit himself to her will. He's doing that because he has delegated to her the task of helping him stay in line so that, you can, so that the family can have money. This is fine. This is right. This is good always in a spirit of desiring his success. The truly submissive wife identifies her husband's responsibilities and his goals, and she dedicates her life to seeing him be successful at those responsibilities and goals. And when he succeeds, that is her success. And this is what submission looks like. This is what it means when the Bible says that the wife should submit herself to her own husband as unto the Lord. That God has created the wife as a helpmeet. God has created the husband to be the head of the wife. And so the wife's success at aligning with God's design is the success with which she accomplishes this purpose of securing her husband's success. But remember, throughout all of this, it is a partnership. The Word of God nowhere reflects the idea that women are simply objects, that women are servants of men's whims. And this is where, even in many Christian circles, submission has gone off the rails. 
to where women are terrified and they feel like they just have to sit in terrified silence and their husbands do whatever they want to do while their wives have to pick up their pieces and clean up their messes. This is not submission. This is a husband who is living outside of sound doctrine entirely. This is not submission. That is not what submission is talking about. Each family will look different. In some families, who does the finances, who teaches the Bible to the children, who does the tasks and the chores, who makes certain decisions, these will all look different depending upon your unique circumstances, your husband's character, his propensities, his capacities, his needs, his shortcomings, all of that comes into play here. Wives, you have bound yourself to your husband under God's design. Your success is reflected in his success. He is the head of the family. But regardless of all of these things, the wife's success rests not in the accomplishment of her own goals, except to the extent that her husband says, hey, you've got your own goals, honey, I love you. Go, go pursue it. Go pursue it. Her success is in facilitating her husband's goals. That is true submission. Back to 1 Peter 3 to get a little bit more of a rounded picture. Verses 1 through 6. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plating of hair or of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit Spirit, excuse me, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God, notice that phrase, who trusted in God, adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. We find here that the submissive wife is, is, is something, is not something in particular. The submissive wife is not a naggy wife. The submissive wife is not a thorn, constant thorn in the shoe of her husband. The submissive wife is a woman that empowers and enables her husband, not hinders or holds him back, not, not hinders and annoys him. The submissive wife reflects in her marriage a meek and a quiet attitude. Meekness, of course, being strength, under control, strength directed toward a particular purpose. She harnesses her capacities and her abilities and directs them towards her husband in obedience to the Lord's design for her and the Lord's commandment unto her. And in doing so, she is able, without nagging, without being a thorn in her husband's shoe, to change his heart, to direct him through her meek and quiet spirit. She has power. She has influence over her husband. And not just in her actions, but in the reality that by doing it God's way, it's not just that the meek and quiet spirit itself touches the heart of a man, though it does. When a husband loves his wife, that spirit will touch him. But secondly, and more importantly, when she does it God's way, she is tapping into the power of God himself, right? That if we do it God's way, we have God's power. That wife, when you do it God's way, that citizen, when you submit in God's way, that church member, when you submit in God's way, that child, when you submit in God's way, it's not just that that submission in and of itself is going to touch the heart of your authority, which it does, but that submission will also touch the heart of God and give a Holy Spirit empowerment to your testimony. And you, you don't just want that. You need that. You need that in your life. And with this, I want to talk about two elements of a wife's submission as we spoke of earlier, and then we'll be done. First off, I want to remind wives of the power of submission. When we think of the female empowerment ideas that float around today, submission is not one of them. That, that's not high on the list of female empowerment attributes. But we need to understand, wives, you need to understand, and we all need to understand as it relates to the other authority relationships we have, government, church, parents, employers, the power of submission. We spoke last week about God's design 
and that when we align our lives with God's design, not only are we aligning our lives with the way God has made us and so finding natural success, but as I just mentioned, we are aligning our lives with the character of God's word in humble obedience to him and we have his blessing. This is no more, nowhere more evident than in the submissive wife of 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, as we're talking about in Sunday school, what's the context of 1 Peter? It's suffering. It's suffering for righteousness' sake. It's when you have bad government. It's when you have a bad, a bad master. It's when you have a bad husband. To husbands that don't fulfill their God-given responsibility of loving their wives, as we'll talk about next week. What does a wife do when her husband is not a godly and obedient man? Should she take it upon herself to reform him? To make him what he needs to be? To drag him along and nag him along and berate him and punish him and bring him in line? Well, simply put, this is not her privilege. Wives, this is not your privilege. Much rather, as with any form of submission, be it government, master, church, as I've mentioned, the power of God is tapped into is reflected when we live our lives in alignment with truth that is higher than we are. And this can have a greater effect than any human intervention. You can get more done, wife, by aligning yourself with God's design in submission, according to 1 Peter 3, than you can ever get done nagging your wife, husband, nagging your husband. Not only because the results will come but secondly and simultaneously they'll come the right way your husband will not be emasculated he'll not have to break the the headship attributes that are important to a man and necessary to a husband in order to align with what needs to be done now are there times where this doesn't work well sure for any number of reasons. And there are other solutions in place, right, wife? When, when it doesn't work, when you're submitting, when you're aligning, things aren't working, you continue to pray, you don't see it working. May I put it to you that way? Because there are things happening. It's bearing the fruit that you want. Even if it's at your expense, it's bearing fruit. But then you can appeal, right? If your husband is in this church, you can appeal to your pastor who is has authority over your husband as well. And he can get involved. You can appeal perhaps to other authorities, to father-in-law, to, um, any, uh, to, to, to the other spiritual authorities in your husband's life to help this process. And then, of course, at the, the top, you appeal to God. And that is right and good and exactly what you ought to be doing. Your husband's having a, having a problem. Take it to God. God, the husband you gave me. Change him. And then while you're waiting for the Lord to do his work, stay submitted. Be faithful. Do your part. And this brings us to the second concept on just a moment. Still under the power of submission for just a moment longer. Wives, the great is not taking things into your own hands or starting to do things your way and just giving up on him or nagging and berating him or punishing him physically or emotionally. The most powerful way you can influence your husband is to submit, yield to God, and, and trust the power of God to work in his life. You don't have to be silent. You don't have to suffer in silence while he makes bad decisions and disregards your needs, but you do need to appeal to him as a God-given authority and other God-given authorities in your life when you need to appeal and align with God's design. And if you do it the right way, not only will your husband love you for it and so be sympathetic to your needs, but you will carry the spiritual power of God with you. Finally, the freedom of submission. Let's talk about it. Submission is a dirty word in marriage today. People see submission, as we've said, as a bad thing, as degrading to human dignity, as an admission of inferiority, as if the person in submission is somehow less of a person than the person in authority. Obviously untrue. Submission, as we've said, is not an outworking of value or dignity. It is an outworking of structure and design. The boss who has a great secretary is going to be vastly more successful than the one who does not. 
The secretary is never going to get success or get, get recognition for that success. But the secretary's success is rooted in the fact of them making their boss successful, of them getting everything down on the calendar right so that the boss can be at the meetings he needs to be at, is the, the secretary making the calls that are necessary so that he's got the person to pick him up at the airport and he's got the tickets in place and he's got everything in place. And if he's got a good secretary, he'll be more successful. And that is her success, right? That is her success. That's her job. That's her success. The movie star or the athlete or the business owner, sure, they're the ones that get all the credit, but every athlete that has his million-dollar endorsements and his face on a Wheaties box has trainers and coaches and everyone else behind him making him successful, right? And the degree to which he's successful is deeply dependent on the degree to which all of those people underneath him who don't get any credit are devoted to his success. That's how things work. The fact that their face doesn't make the billboard doesn't make them any less of a person, any, anywhere inferiority. And, and as a matter of fact, if an athlete or a boss or a movie star knows what's good for them, they are going to surround themselves with the most, with the most capable people possible, right? They're not going to su- surround themselves by people who, who feel inferior because those people aren't going to help make him successful, They're going to surround themselves by people who themselves are very successful, who themselves are going to push the limits, are going to work hard, because that's going to make him more successful. Submission has nothing to do with value. And that being said, wives, submission is incredibly freeing. Because with authority comes responsibility. We've said this throughout. Wives, on the day of judgment, you will not be the one to answer for the spiritual character of your marriage. Do you know that? Whether you made the decisions or not, you will not be the one who answers for them. Your husband will rise and fall for what happens in the home. That is his responsibility. Whether he takes that responsibility or not, he will be the one to answer for it one day. He's the head of the home. He's the one that God has delegated this responsibility and he will stand before God and answer for it. He will stand before God and be judged for it. You will not be. That is not your responsibility. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, what is it that you will answer for? It will not be for the decision your husband made. It will be whether or not you submitted to it. You will not answer to God for his decisions or for the the decisions in your family. You will answer to God for your responsibility and your responsibility is submission. If your husband insists on making a bad decision, you respectfully appeal, you do everything you can to help him, to be a helpmeet for him, and he does it anyway, your freedom is knowing that you will not answer to God for that. He will answer to God for that. And I'll tell you what, that, that's freeing. That's a, that's, a, that's a freeing thing. If a man who owns a company comes up to one of his employees and says, hey, I want to make this decision. And the employee says, Bosh, you're a little bit disconnected from what's happening here. That's not a good decision. This is not going to do well for your business. And the boss says, hey, do it anyway. I don't have to worry. The, the employee doesn't have to worry about the consequences of that decision. His boss will rise and fall for the consequences of that decision. He's just doing what he's told. The man on the battlefield who gets an order from the general and the general says, do this. And you say, general, that may not be the best tactic. And the general says, look, you're not there to, 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 to give me tactics. You're there to do what I tell you. And he does it. He's not the one that's going to get court-martialed if things go wrong. The one who gave the order is the one that's going to get court-martialed if things go wrong, right? This is how authority works. There is freedom in submission. If you have done your part, wives, if you are his partner, if you are his co-heir to the grace of life, if you are his helpmeet, if you have sought for his success, even in respectful resistance to his bad decisions, if you have maintained that meek and quiet spirit, if you have appealed to his authority, if you have appealed to others' authorities, if you have done your part, and you, then you have, a, you have aligned with God's design. You've done it. You will be in the path of God's design, in the path of God's blessing, in the path of eternal rewards. It is your husband that bears the weight of the spiritual responsibility for the marriage and the family, not you. And to this extent, you can live free from that care and that burden, except to the degree that you care and your burden for your husband's day of judgment and his accountability. So our family series began with a focus upon the responsibility of the wife. 
created to be her husband's helpmeet, to aim, to aid him and complete him. She's created to be a co-heir with her husband to the grace of life that offered in Christ. They are partners. She's not just along for the ride. She is created to live in the freedom of submission with her success from a marriage perspective being wholly related to the success of her husband and his spiritual authority. Now, the nitty-gritty of all this play, uh, how all this plays out is for another form. If I said something today and wife, you're saying, Pastor, how do I account for this particular uniqueness in my marriage? I'd encourage you to come to me and to talk to me about that directly so that we can work on your situation individually. As with any element of life and godliness, happy is the woman who can find complete fulfillment and contentness in the design of God for her as it relates to her relationship with her husband in marriage. And may God help our wives to live in such a manner, not as unto their husbands or as unto their church or as unto their pastor or as unto their society, but may wives live in a manner in their relationship with their husbands as unto the Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.